0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the wars in Gaza and Ukraine that have become political burdens for Biden as they drag on, with the two most destructive and despicable figures on the world stage, Netanyahu and Putin, wanting to prolong the wars to help Trump return to the presidency to do their bidding. Joining us is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. We'll discuss his article at lincolnmitchell.substack.com. Biden's re-election hopes are increasingly in Netanyahu's hands. Then we'll go to Jordan to speak with Omar Shakir, who serves as the Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch, where he investigates human rights abuses in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, and has authored several major reports, including a 2021 report comprehensively documenting how Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution against millions of Palestinians. As a result of his advocacy, the Israeli government deported Omar in November of 2019. He is the co-author of a new report at Human Rights Watch, which we will discuss. Israel is starving Gaza civilians as a method of warfare. Then finally, we will look into how Trump, Governor Abbott and the Republicans are demagoguing the crisis at the southern border without offering workable policies, having stymied earlier efforts for a comprehensive solution as 200,000 immigrants a month continue to show up. Joining us is Gus Bova, a senior staff writer and assistant editor at the Texas Observer, where he covers labor, immigration and politics. He previously worked at a shelter for recently arrived immigrants and asylum seekers, and we will discuss his latest article at the Observer, Texas is challenging 150 years of immigration law. And before we begin, as the year rapidly comes to a close, many are looking for tax deductions. So I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992, and he has an article at lincolnmitchell.substack.com. Biden's re-election hopes are increasingly in Netanyahu's hands. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell.
1: Great to be back, in.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And in your article, you write that there is a scenario where both of the wars in Ukraine and Gaza end in the next month or two and Americans turn their attention back to abortion rights, the future of democracy and a rapidly recovering economy. But that is extremely unlikely, bordering on fantasy, particularly because both Vladimir Putin and Benjamin Netanyahu, two of the most villainous and destructive figures on the world stage, have an incentive to prolong their wars precisely because it would likely accelerate the return of Donald Trump to the presidency. Now, that's a very realistic scenario, I'm afraid, Lincoln, a deeply depressing one. So what are the chances then of any, I mean, it's clear from Vladimir Putin's recent speeches and his recent press conference that he's going to, Extend the war. He thinks he's going to win, and he thinks he's going to win through information wars and not through the battlefield in Ukraine, and Trump is his ticket. But in Netanyahu's case, of course, he's like Trump. The longer the war goes on, the less chance there is of Netanyahu going to jail. So he has every incentive to drag it out. So what can Biden do under these circumstances?
1: Biden. What Biden can do and what he should have been doing earlier is link aid to Israel with really pushing Netanyahu to either conduct this war very differently or to get out of the way. And there are those who will say that the United States and no one else has a right to tell Israel how to defend itself. That is simply not true. Israel and this is the thing you. This is the most kind of explosive thing you can say about Israel. But Israel is an American client. If the United States stops supporting Israel at any point in the last forty years, Israel is in extremely dire straits, and that gives the United States leverage. And when the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, in this case, is conducting a war that, first of all, is an extraordinary human rights uh, atrocity, like right, killing all of these civilians, many of whom are children. Um, but is also directionless is in the long run bad for Israel because all that is happening now is, is he is creating more enemies for the state of Israel. He's making every Jew in the world less safe. And he is Netanyahu is doing that for two reasons. So he can remain in power and stay out of jail. And if that sounds resonant of Donald Trump, it's because it's true. It is resonant of Donald Trump. What Biden can do is accelerate that pressure and intensify that pressure, but The problem is, with every day that goes by, Biden has less leverage over Netanyahu.
0: You also write that Hamas seems to be pursuing a cunning yet but diabolical strategy where Gazan civilians are sacrificed in the name name of turning global public opinion against Israel. This is working for Hamas, but much less so for the innocent civilians, many of whom are children in Gaza. So... I guess that gets back to what happened here in the United States after 9-11, that we took bin Laden's bait. How much do you think uh, the Israelis took Hamas's bait?
1: They absolutely did, and I want to be clear here. There are many who have said that Hamas uh, made this horrific attack, killing over a 1,000 Jewish civilians on October 7th, in spite of knowing or despite knowing that it would lead to massive numbers of Gaza casualties in Gaza, but that's not true. Hamas did this because they knew it would lead to the deaths in Gaza. This was part of their strategy, and you can't underscore that enough. As angry as the world is at what Israel is doing uh, in Gaza, if you are not if every individual is not equally angry at Hamas, they are being uh, disingenuous. This blood is as much on Hamas's hands as it is on the IDF's hands. However, it is still the wrong strategy, for the IDF to pursue and they fell for it. They went in and it's very clear they don't have a plan. Yes, of course the state of Israel should make sure that Hamas cannot do something like this again. Just like the United States of America by the evening of September 11th on 2001, uh, needed to make sure that Al Qaeda and nobody else could do an attack like that in the United States again. That is a reasonable goal, that is the right goal, but they've pursued it in a way that is disconnected to the goal. So they have made Israel less safe, and as I said before, they've made every Jew in the world less safe.
0: So this, though, unfortunately, I mean, the whole thrust of your article, Biden's re-election hopes are increasingly in Netanyahu's hands, is about, in effect, how the United States does not control its own political destiny. And if you go back to Bobby Kennedy, who was a shoo-in to be president uh, against Nixon, He was assassinated by a Palestinian Syrian Syrian over the sale of jets to Israel. So some obscure player out of nowhere changes the politics of America. And then in 1980, the Republicans, Reagan's people, with Governor Colony of Texas, made a dirty deal with the Ayatollah to hold the hostages so that Jimmy Carter would twist in the wind and lose the election. So that brought us... Another obscure player in the Middle East brought us Ronald Reagan. And then you can see the same thing happen with Osama bin Laden, with George W. Bush, and particularly with Saddam Hussein, as well in 2004, helping re-elect George W. Bush. And now you've got the same thing happening here with Netanyahu and Hamas, another obscure bunch of hideous people. So why are we so vulnerable to be whipsawed by events in the Middle East. Why can't we just forget about that place? And all we've done is dug a huge hole in the sand and buried trillions and trillions of our treasure for no gain whatsoever.
1: And not just trillions and trillions of our treasure, but many, many lives, both uh, lives in that part of the world and, and the lives of American soldiers. And, the, you know, it is a, the world is globalized. And that means that the economy is globalized and trade is globalized and culture is globalized, but it also means that politics and communications are globalized and that is what, that is what has happened now. And, you know, America is whether you or I like it is the global hegemon and the, the, the challenge there is that America, American foreign policy elite look at the world and they see every problem as something that can and should be solved by the United States. And sometimes there are problems that the United States should try to solve, and sometimes there aren't. And that the inability to make that distinction is is very pro- difficult. Now, now the cases you met you you've given are all cases where events really drove what happened. It wasn't like anyone in the US, you know, contracted Sirhan Sir Han, Sirhan, you know, to, to shoot Bobby Kennedy. And we should be clear here for our younger listeners, we're talking about Bobby Kennedy senior, right? Um but so, so that event absolutely changed American elections, just like, as you say, in 1980 and going into the present. That's the nature of the presidency. It is a foreign policy job. So foreign policy events are going to change it. The problem here with Biden is that he ha- he has created this problem for himself by not handling this conflict, which was started by Hamas in a smarter way.
0: So. So. Given the trajectory we're on then, Lincoln, and as you write, when Americans go to the polls in 2024, we will have to choose between a flawed and older centrist Democrat and an angry, unstable fascist who has made his goal of destroying American democracy evident. It is in this context that the relationship between the war in Gaza and American politics must be understood. Now, when you make that point, you'd think that there'd be enough rational people in this country to recognize that it's a no-brainer. You cannot possibly re-elect Donald Trump. But why? Why is he the the head of one of the two main parties, controls the Republican Party, is way ahead of his rivals, and now, of course, you've got this uh, 14th Amendment case in Colorado where he's being disqualified from the ballot. If they succeed, which is not likely to take him off the ballot in a number of states. All that will do is make the possibility of Nikki Haley becoming the nominee more possible. And I think Nikki Haley would actually beat Biden, whereas you could make the case that the best thing that Biden's got going for him is this crazy fascist.
1: There's no question that Trump is the weakest of the major Republican candidates in a general election against Biden. We should also note that the election hasn't happened and Biden has a pretty good chance of winning. I mean, I would say at this point, it looks like a coin toss. So he's not he's not out of this yet. But you know, one thing we have to recognize is that a fascist like Trump would be the fringe figure that he was unless he had a constituency for his fascism. And fascism happens because leaders, try to take countries in a particular fascistic direction, but also because they have a constituency for that. And that is the fundamental problem that exists in the United States. It is not just that Trump is the leader in the Republican primaries, which of course he is, but it's that his movement has taken over the party. So when you say, I think accurately from a political perspective, that Nikki Haley would be a much stronger general election candidate against Joe Biden, You know, Haley has not embraced, certainly not the ugly fascist rhetoric that we've seen Trump embrace in the last, I don't know, years, months since he's left office. But to to kind of understand Haley as a conventional Republican is absolutely wrong. She is fascist adjacent. She has refused to really denounce Trump. She has refused to really unequivocally say that Joe Biden won in 2020. There is no getting out of this until the Republican party is soundly defeated you know, in at least two elections in a row. And that is extremely unlikely to happen for a number of years. This fight between democracy and fascism, and I use those terms deliberately, is going to go on perhaps for at least another decade. This is the new reality in the United States, and it is not clear how we emerge from it or what America looks like if and when we do emerge from it.
0: Well, on yesterday's program, I spoke to a specialist on rhetoric, uh, Jennifer Machia at Texas A&M, and she made the point, which I thought was really uh, very, very important, and that is that not only is Trump a weak man, but he's a loser, and he's lost. You know, he lost the popular vote in twenty sixteen. He lost in twenty twenty four. Lost in the Democrat. The Republicans lost in twenty eighteen and twenty twenty two, and they will lose again with him. But the fact that he's a loser has turned him into. A fascist, because you know, in effect, so was Hitler. It was a Hitler was a totally failed artist and architect. So you've got this sort of situation, this paradox of a loser turning himself into a strongman because he can't face the fact that he's a loser.
1: That's that's right. And remember, Trump also, you know, is from a culture and a world where he talked about being a winner all the time. That was the thing you needed to be in life—a winner—and. Part of what, what I think we've seen since the November 2020 is that rather is that the reality that he is a loser was something Donald Trump simply could not accept. So he rebelled against that reality and surrounded himself with people. The only people who we, who we would speak to and surround himself with the, the price of entry into Trump's world was to believe or to say that you believed that he was not a loser, that he was a winner. And this has, but he knows in his heart he lost. And this has made him angrier and more dangerous. But remember, you don't need a majority to destroy a democracy. You need a sizable minority. And so while Trump has lost, never won the popular vote, his party has done very poorly under his stewardship, he still has about something like 30 to 35% of the country that would you know, lie down in front of a freight train for him. And that makes him a very, very powerful political figure regardless of if he wins the next election.
0: Well, that's the problem, isn't it? 35% of the country wants an authoritarian, and the 65% of the country, as Liz Cheney has said, are sleepwalking into dictatorship.
1: Well, I don't know that 60% of the country are sleepwalking, and, and Liz Cheney was sleepwalking into dictatorship, too, as of January 5th, 2021, so let's let's not give her too much credit here. It took her the events of January 6th to figure out that you know there was a problem with Donald Trump, but... You know, 40% of the country or 45% is actively opposed to Donald Trump. But there's about 15 to 20% that are sleepwalking a little bit here. And if that doesn't change, we could be in very, very big trouble beginning in November of 2024.
0: Well, Lincoln Mitchell, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's always fun, even if I'm not always as reliably optimistic as you might
0: (laughs) Well, I thank you again. Uh, Lincoln Mitchell is a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he has an article at lincolnmitchell.substack.com. Biden's re-election hopes are increasingly in Netanyahu's hands. We're going to take appreciation break and back and go to Jordan to speak with the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch. Let's be friends. This is the word we use every day. Most of the time we use it in the wrong way. Now you can look the word up again and again. But the dictionary doesn't know the meaning of friends. And if you ask me, you know I couldn't be much help because a friend's
1: somebody you judge for yourself. Some are okay and they treat you real cool. And some mistake
0: your kindness for being the fool. We like to be with some they funny. Others come around when they need some money. Some grew up with around the way and you're still real close to this Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Omar Shakir who serves as the Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch where he investigates human rights abuses in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza and as authored several major reports, including a 2021 report comprehensively documenting how Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution against millions of Palestinians. As a result of his advocacy, the Israeli government deported Omar in November of 2019. And he's the co-author of a new report at Human Rights Watch, Israel is Starving Guards of Civilians as a Method of Warfare. And he joins us from Jordan. Welcome to Background Briefing. Omar Shakir.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Omar. And uh, right across the board, there's human rights abuses happening in Gaza on a massive scale. And uh, your latest report adds to it. But the women being shot trying to escape into a church by an Israeli sniper has resulted in church leaders like the Archbishop of Canterbury complaining and condemning Israel's behavior. What is happening with the IDF? What are the real rules of engagement here? If they shoot down their own people, it seems to me that there are no holds barred. This is just a free-for-all. How does it strike you?
2: I think the problem here is that they didn't think they were shooting their own people. They assumed it was yet another time they were shooting Palestinians. I think Um, I mean, let's be clear, hostage taking, of course, is a war crime. Uh, The Israeli hostages should have never been in Gaza uh, in the first place. But the reality is the Israeli government has for years been following a policy for decades, in fact, of um, shoot first and ask questions later. They have routinely used unlawful force against Palestinians um, in the West Bank during policing operations during in Gaza. Um, I, during their ground invasions, during, of course, their aerial campaigns. Uh, Human Rights Watch, in fact, in 2009, released a report that documented white flag deaths, as we called it. We investigated um, seven different incidents in which 11 people, four of whom were children, five of whom were women, were gunned down while waving a white flag unarmed and uh, cases that were uh, deliberate killings of civilians. And there was no accountability for those killings. Neither were there was there accountability for decades of unlawful killings and other grave abuses. And that impunity is precisely what creates a situation like this, where um, you have the, the, the shooting of hostages, because that's been the routine policy um, of the Israeli government for many years. And certainly, we and other groups have documented um, unlawful um, use of force by the Israeli government in recent weeks and months, and this is not a new phenomenon.
0: But their war aims of the, of the IDF are to eliminate Hamas. And as far as I know, and it's hard to get any concrete figures on this, but as far as I know, there's about 30,000 Hamas fighters, and maybe they've killed 10,000. Well, again, these are estimates. So it's taken several months to get to this point. So you have, you've got to triple the amount of time it's going to take. So we're talking about several months more of this war if that's the logic?
2: I mean, I think that's the stated logic. Uh, Certainly, um, we certainly can't cooperate those numbers, but what we can tell you is if the nearly 20,000 people in Gaza that have been killed during hostilities, they include at least uh, 7,800 children. Uh, The majority are women and children. Um, You know, certainly, um, you know, some of those, uh, many of the men killed have Have been civilians. Um, The reality here is while the Israeli government says this is about destroying Hamas, their actions indicate that they're in effect at war with the people of Gaza. I mean, when you cut electricity and water, um, when you uh, seal your crossings for the entry of food uh, and medicine, when you obstruct all but a trickle of aid entering from Egypt, These are all tactics that um, punish an entire civilian population. Um, And while ostensibly it could be used, you know, it's aimed maybe at stopping the armed group. These are clear violations of the laws of war. Um, And the reality here is that the um, Israeli government has spoken uh, quite clearly, in fact, about their objectives here. They've they've spoken about, um, you know, no aid, no water. They've talked about their emphasis being on damage, not necessarily on concrete military objectives. There have been comments by Netanyahu and other senior officials about, um, you know, uh, raising essentially Gaza to the ground. And their actions are consistent with those kinds of words. I mean, we, we have a reality where the majority, I mean, 90% of the population is displaced where the majority of homes in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed, according to either the Gaza local authorities or U.N. figures. Um, So it's a, um, I mean, I've run out of adjectives to describe how dire the situation is, but whatever the Israeli government says, whatever they might be you know, uh, articulating on the ground, this looks like a war against the people of Gaza, and it looks like a war that, um, at least for parts of Gaza, entire neighborhoods and 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 and, and different parts of Gaza, um, you know, reduced to rubble. A campaign of 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 death, carnage, and destruction that have that that left has left no one unspared in Gaza.
0: So let's talk about your new report at Human Rights Watch, Omar. And one of the aspects of it that I hadn't heard about before is the extent to which the agricultural potential of what exists in in that very narrow Gaza Strip is also being destroyed, along with the inability of food trucks to arrive. Uh, So just give us the bullet points, if you will, of why you have come to the conclusion that the Israelis or the IDF is using starvation as a war tactic? Sure. Um, I would say there are five concerning
2: trends we've noticed over the last, um, you know, weeks that came together that led us to this um, conclusion. The first uh, two I've mentioned already, the first is the continued sealing of Israel's crossing for the entry of goods, of food, of medicine, uh, you know, for more, for, for more than two months. Secondly, is the willful impede- impeding uh, of humanitarian uh, aid, only a trickle of aid coming in through Egypt. And then, the you know, the, the last three things are, one, what you mentioned, the apparently deliberate raising of agricultural land. We've been looking at satellite imagery in different parts of Gaza that clearly show, um, the israeli government turning lush green land farms um greenhouses etc into uh brown wasteland and we have a statement uh we cite from in the report from uh, a senior israeli army official basically saying that they're going to you know raise um agricultural land to the ground fourth we document how objects that are critical for human survival, things like bakeries, um, granaries and wheat mills, um, water and sanitation facilities, um, hospitals, um, in northern Gaza in particular, almost none of them are operational, either because of airstrikes, either because of fuel running out, um, uh, desalinization plants, water pumping stations, or because of other damage during the ground operation. That, that makes life... Unlivable for the population. And finally, we catalog statements from senior Israeli government officials that set out in very plain terms that they are doing all of this, in particular, cutting aid and, and, and stopping the entry of um, food and medicine and fuel as part of a strategy aimed at accomplishing their objectives, whether it be demolishing Hamas or um, uh, returning hostages. This is textbook use of starvation as a weapon of war. That's the kind of tactics we've seen the Syrian regime using and and others, and it's a war crime. It's an abhorrent war crime, and the results are clear. Um, You have alarming warnings coming from humanitarian organizations. We cite in the report nine of 10 people in northern Gaza have gone a full day and a full night without food. Um, The the percentage of severe shortage of food is about half uh, the population in northern Gaza. And and by the way, by the hour, by the day, it increases. We heard testimonies. We talked to uh, 11 people and all of them Talked about waiting hours just to find some bread, to find some clean water. And the effects on the population are stark. We're already seeing thousands of uh, contagious disease spreading. So, you know, while we're counting the hundreds of bodies a day uh, that are dying in airstrikes, we could be facing a reality soon where the number that die because of disease, or, you know, because uh, that's often what happens with starvation, that people actually die because of disease um uh could 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 could, could, go, could go way above those numbers
0: so let's try and analyze if we can what logical lack of their lack thereof is in this whole agony first of all Hamas provoked this by this brutal butchering of Israeli civilians and they must have known that what the retaliation would be and as a, as a consequence of what they've done you know obviously they, Scuttled the Abraham Accords, the rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and they've definitely, the result has been a global condemnation of Israel and a lot, and a growing global sympathy for the Palestinians. But Hamas is a pretty unsavory group, to say the very least. Is there any evidence that there could have been a strategy to separate? Uh, Hamas from the population of Gaza and not punish the population, but rather punish Hamas?
2: So I think, let's be clear, um, Hamas committed war crimes on October 7th and have since. Um, the deliberate killing of civilians, firing into um, crowds, um, you know, shooting people in their homes, taking civilians as hostages. These are war crimes. They have no justification. Uh, there must be accountability for them um uh and i think the point to underscore here is the israeli government has shown little interest in you know actual accountability i mean they you know the international criminal court has a formal probe the prosecutors made clear that these crimes fall within the jurisdiction of the court um you know within minutes um uh, certainly hours and days of the heinous attacks the israeli government began taking a strategy that punished the entire population look Um, The laws of war are made, are built on several fundamental principles, one of which is distinguishing between civilians and combatants. And that's uh, a basic principle that the Israeli government has routinely disregarded here. And certainly it could have been followed. I mean, these are not deals between fighters. These are deals with humanity. And they're the same rules we apply in Ukraine and Syria and um, Sudan and armed conflicts across the world. And so there's there's a critical need for them to be adhered to. And I think, you know, the Israeli government, um, you know, has a long history of disregarding uh, these rules. This isn't the first time. This isn't a, you know, a unique response. I mean, it is unique in the scale, but in the, in, in the disregard for Palestinian life and in the nature of some of these abuses, we've been seeing them for decades. So, yes, there was a different path that was possible. Uh, There still is a different path. We shouldn't, you know, give up hope. But the reality here is that you have to address some of the root causes here, and that includes Israel's decades-long significant repression of Palestinians, um, which Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Palestinian-Israeli human rights groups have called the crime against humanity of apartheid. And beyond that, there's a need for accountability, uh, for grave abuses. Um, I mean, there also needs to be an ending to things like the closure policy for 16 years. Israel, in essence, treated Gaza like an open air prison, uh, a generalized ban on travel and, you know, that kind those kinds of policies Um, are at the root of um, the kind of uh, continued violence and repression that we're dealing with, and they must be addressed, um, and there still is a chance to do so. There are many in Israel that are um, uh, speaking out about this, including families of the hostages that understand the linkages between security for Palestinians, freedom for Palestinians, and security for
0: Israelis. Well, How do you deal with the fundamental problem, though, Omar, which seems to be that there's just growing hatred between these two peoples, the Palestinians and the Israelis? And obviously there's a lot of bitterness and humiliation suffered by the Palestinians, which is not surprising that there's a lot of hatred for the overseer, if you will. But on the other hand, when Hamas does what they do, it absolutely you know rise up the entire israeli population the idea of the foundation of the state of israel was to make a safe place for jews and that whole compact has been exploded so th- this seems to be largely about vengeance and that's what biden warned early on netanyahu don't make the mistakes that the united states made after the 9/11 attacks where we struck out in a counterproductive and stupid way. So at the heart of it, do we have to acknowledge the reality of this hatred and what can be done to undo it?
2: Look, I mean, I
0: I disagree a little bit um, with that. Obviously,
2: there's vengeance and there is um, invariably when you have situations of conflict, it creates, um, you know, deep frustrations and hurt and pain from all communities. But this is not a Um, I know you're not saying this, but this is not a thousands year old conflict between people that hate each other. Right. This is a modern day conflict like many elsewhere in the world. That's about land access to resources and rights. It is a um you know a, a situation that at its core is about a structural a, a, a structure of repression and violence. It's about a system methodically engineered to maintain the domination by one people, Jewish Israelis over another, Palestinians. They're about equal size between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and the Israeli government has long pursued a policy that has sought to um ensure the domination by Jewish Israelis, including in in access to land, including in demographic considerations. And that's key to understanding the reality in Gaza. I mean, the reason why Gaza, I mean, again, we're talking about a 25 by seven mile strip of land that has 2.2 million people um, who um, the majority of whom have never left Gaza because there's a generalized ban on movement and who 80 percent of whom before October 7th relied on humanitarian aid, the very aid That um, is now being denied. That's not um, that's that's a deliberate man-made policy. Gaza has always been a well educated, um, you know, urban environment, Um, you know, GDP per capita has gone down um, in the last 30 years, even before the recent events as a result of the Israeli closure policy. The point of me saying all of this is to say that. Um, I see in my work, I mean, you know, spent uh, several years on the ground and uh, working with Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations, there's quite a bit uh, of goodwill between, you know, for example, Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations by people on the ground. I see amazing uh, partnerships and solidarity countering repression in the West Bank, um, you know, on a regular basis. Um, the problem is not That. The problem is the core daily structural violence and repression. You dismantle that unjust system. And I think the people on the ground, um, you know, will find ways to live together. But so long as you don't address that structural violence it leads to these periods of hot violence, right? Of bloodshed and carnage and oppression. And when that happens anywhere in the world, it's not unique to Israel-Palestine, that furthers the different cleavages, whether they be ethnic, national, racial, religious, in any society, but you deal with them and you provide a way for a future that centers the rights and dignity and justice of all people. And people find ways to live together when they do so as equals um, with, with their dignity respected.
0: So um, just in the last minute then, I just wanted to touch on a couple of breaking news issues involving Gaza. Top of Hamash officials in Cairo, apparently there's a possibility of a new truce and Israel is now pumping seawater into the tunnels and there's warning from environmentalists that this could uh, destroy the aquifer, which would then further destroy whatever agricultural potential is left in Gaza.
2: Yeah, I mean, let, let's break those stories out. Right. So, I mean, starting with the seawater, um, you know, it's it is definitely concerning. Right. I mean, most of the um, groundwater in Gaza, 97 percent is unfit for human consumption so that the aquifer is already largely um, uh, doesn't include water that's usable for the population, but in a situation where Israel's is cut water and where people are relying on bottled water, which obviously isn't reaching anywhere and is not entering in the quantities that are necessary, people have few options, and many are turning to the to, to the brackish water in Gaza. And obviously, there's a risk. I mean, I'm I, my concern is maybe even more so for the effect on potential collapsing of structures. Um, in Gaza, if this, uh, you know, you know, affects the foundation of uh, buildings. Al-Haq, the Palestinian rights group, Forensic Architecture, uh, issued a report warning about this in terms of the negotiations. um, The important point to emphasize here is human beings should never be bargaining chips, right? Whether they're hostages being held, um, you know, by Palestinian armed groups, whether they are um, Palestinian detainees that are unlawfully detained, whether it's humanitarian aid ent- entering in Gaza, human beings should never be bargaining chips. Ultimately, unlo- ceasefire or not, um, people unlawfully detained, hostages should be released. Um, humanitarian aid should be allowed in, and hostages should be released unconditionally and immediately. That said, obviously, um, you know, any uh, you know, pause in unlawful attacks, any release of unlawfully held people of hostages is a welcome move. But this continued use of human beings and human life as bargaining chips is a huge part of the problem here. It's something that Hamas is doing. It's something the Israeli government is doing. It's somebody, something nobody should be doing.
0: Well, Omar I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I me speak with Omar Shakir, who serves as the Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch, where he investigates human rights abuses in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza, and has authored several major reports, including a 2021 report comprehensively documenting how Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanities of apartheid and persecution against millions of Palestinians. As a result of his advocacy, the Israeli government deported Omar in November of 2019. He's the co-author of a new report at Human Rights Watch, Israel is Starving Gaza Civilians as a Method of Warfare. And he joined us from Jordan. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at how Trump... Governor Abbott and the Republicans are demagoguing the crisis at the southern border without offering workable policies, having stymied earlier efforts for a comprehensive solution as 200,000 immigrants a month continue to show up. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gus Bova, who is a senior staff writer and assistant editor at the Texas Observer, where he covers labor, immigration, and politics. He previously worked at a shelter for recently arrived immigrants and asylum seekers. And his latest article at the Observer is Texas is Challenging 150 Years of Immigration Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gus Bova.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, after having had Operation Lone Star and now SB4, which the governor signed on Monday, there's obviously a lot of backlash and it clearly it's going to be, I think the ACLU has already sued. It's clearly going to be tested. It doesn't sound at all constitutional. that You just round up anybody with brown skin. Show me your papers. It has a kind of Gestapo feel to it, to say the least but in general guys it feels like the whole issue of the southern border is so politicized now and so partisan that so many people like governor Abbott and the republicans are just demagoguing it and nobody's even talking about dealing with the reality you know just in the in the month of november alone 200,000 emigrants showed up at the southern borders, and they, and by the way, the the U.S. is closing in, in many of these ports of entry. So, as somebody that's dealt with this issue and worked with the immigrants in these detention centers, what's your sense of whether anybody is dealing with the reality here?
3: Well, I think you're right that uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott and other similar Republican politicians they've basically found that for their voters uh they really can't go too far with this issue as far as being being you know border security hawks they really can't go too far for the republican primary electorate and then at least in texas when the general election rolls around so far nobody's really switching their vote to democrats based on border and immigration in fact democrats see it as a political liability themselves um of course a single state isn't really in a position to address the root causes behind uh, the root causes of large-scale immigration and the hemispheric and global refugee crisis. Uh, And so I guess we're just left with this sort of escalating uh, series of cruel tactics trying to deter people from coming to this one state. It's a political winner. Uh, What we're going to find out right now with this bill, Senate Bill 4, is whether uh, all the work that Trump and the right-wing movement has done to sort of shift the courts, we're going to find out whether that's laid the groundwork for states to really break an extremely long legal precedent that basically puts control of immigration in the hands of the federal government. The state can only do sort of Marginally related things. They can't get directly involved. And that's what this bill tests, and that's what it is meant to test. You know, our our governor here, you know is not just a opportunistic politician. He's also a real a real lawyer. He was a state attorney general. He's a smart lawyer, and there is a strategy here to test uh, well-established
0: precedents. But in terms of the politics, it's pretty clear that the Republicans have put, They've snared Biden into a trap, haven't they? Because in order to get funds for Ukraine, (laughs) Biden has to do something, make some compromise with the Republicans who are making maximalist demands, which are going to be incredibly unpopular with the Democratic base. So Biden's already losing young Democrats over his support for Israel in Gaza, uh, and he's likely to lose the Latino vote if they have to make some hideous compromise with the Republicans and do some of the more punitive stuff that the Republicans want
3: I can only speak I guess for Texas you know there is some shift toward the Republicans among Latinos here uh, along the border there's an interesting dynamic where um, there's a huge undocumented population and and children of undocumented immigrants but a lot of those kids also work for uh, US Border Patrol and the Border Security Uh, agencies. So there's sort of um, interesting sort of, I guess you could say conflicting loyalties or conflicting ideas. So I'm not positive what the political cost of this asylum bargain they're talking about would be. But just from a policy perspective, I mean, I've gone back and done reporting on all the different comprehensive immigration reform deals that almost came together and failed over the years, right? And the idea for decades was you'd put together a a compromise package that would have border security with a guest worker program and legalization. We've gone from that, apparently, to border security crackdown, asylum crackdown, in exchange for something entirely unrelated. So it's sort of striking to me how it's devolved in that way.
0: Well, the refrain that you hear from the Texas governor is that the feds have basically dropped the ball. And... Mm-hmm. basically place the burden on the states. But Abbott's not alone. I mean, he's, he's obviously grandstanding, as you've mentioned. But Katie Hobbs in Arizona is a Democrat, and she's saying the same thing, that the feds have failed us, meaning the state of Arizona, and we're going to have to send our National Guard down to the border. So, again, I mean, do they have a point here, these governors?
3: that there's some troubles that result from disorderly immigration uh, sure I mean there in you know the Texas border is mostly privately owned so um, there is some troubles that come to property owners that have a large amount of people trying to uh, navigate through their property to avoid detection um, over in Arizona, the border looks different obviously and right there along the border it's federally owned but uh, I'm sure that there are some issues. And then there's transportation logistics and trying to, if if we actually are interested in sort of accommodating and integrating and assisting people get on their feet, which is, you know, what I used to do for a living before I was a reporter, that does take resources. Um, there's a lot of nonprofits who do that work and could use more funding to help them do it. Um, but sure, I suppose there's, I suppose, I suppose there's some point to it at the same time, the bigger story about immigration is still uh, how crucial they are to uh, to our economy, as it's always been, I suppose. And, you know, also, I don't think Arizona right now is trying to uh, pass a law that creates a unprecedented state uh, deportation regime. So Texas right. is, is moving the ball forward a bit in that regard.
0: But, Gus, I'm trying to figure out what can be done, though, when I mentioned the, the figures of a November 200,000 people showing up at the southern border. And it, it's likely to continue because people are fleeing I think a, a quarter to a third of the population of Venezuela has fled. Yes. Uh, Cuba is also dysfunctional and people are leaving. Mm-hmm. So is Nicaragua under the dictatorship of Ortega. People are fleeing. Guatemala, they've just elected a reformer, but now the crooks that run Guatemala yeah. they, are trying to prevent him from taking office and you know you've got an improved government in Honduras but still massive problems of crime and violence and people are leaving there and El Salvador is another example so that's you know I mean early on Biden sent Vice President Harris down there to deal with the roots problems of emigration, meaning make life more livable in these countries so people don't leave that doesn't seem to be working at all right (sighs) You
3: know, I, I, I don't have an a entirely workable solution, but a couple thoughts. Um, you pointed to El Salvador, that immigration there has gone down, but in large part it's because of an authoritarian crackdown and a massive uh, incarcerated population there now. Um, I mean, a couple thoughts. Uh, one, a lot of times I think when they talk about root causes, they talk about foreign aid, which are these politically difficult, uh, propositions they're always in danger of getting cut and frankly if you look at the amount of money the u.s ever sends in foreign aid to these countries it's it's nothing compared to what immigrants themselves send in remittances right so i think it's just important to keep that in context that those types of programs are a drop in the bucket compared to the economic transfer that happens just from immigrants being allowed to come from those areas and work here. It's something like a quarter of the GDP of some of those Central American countries is remittances. Um, And the only other thought I have is just, you know, there's a lot of U.S. complicity (laughs) in uh, the problems that Guatemala has had and continues to have, and some of those other countries in Latin America.
0: But what we're heading towards, and Trump made this speech, um, I think it was last Wednesday in Florida at a rally, Trump talked about his plans for the largest deportation operation in American history. And then he's been talking with Stephen Miller, apparently, about building concentration camps on the southern Uh border. I mean, is that where we're heading? In other words, you've got this humanitarian catastrophe. These people that leave these countries and go through horrendous difficulties and going through the Darien Gap is just a horror story. And then taking that train... Uh, through Mexico, uh, it's just another horror story, and they get robbed and beaten on the way, and they finally get here, and then they, you know, they either turn back, and have to rot on the inside Mexico on the border, where life is difficult to say the least, and or you know if they can get an asylum claim, they're stuck in a in a concentration camp, so it's just so hideous the, at every level, and I'm wondering. When are we going to deal with this in a realistic way, as opposed to a punitive way?
3: Well, I mean, it's the right question. I mean, the whole story you told is absolutely right. I mean, I, like we were talking about my old job at a shelter. I mean, I used to work with folks who came from, you know, Somalia to Brazil and then worked their way up through the across the Darien Gap, like you said. And it's, uh, it's just unbelievable the journey. And you certainly understand why once they get to the Texas-Mexico border, they're not going to be easily deterred at that point. But um, the Trump presidency, I think I read the same New York Times reporting everyone did. It seems their plan is to put the true, the true hardliners in place on day one, try to gut anything within the executive branch that can possibly get in the way of them just quickly executing their vision and to try to do a lot more damage, a lot more quickly than they did last time. And that seems like that's what would happen. Um, Again, I think one of the big problems is that we have an asylum system, an asylum legal regime, right? That's sort of roughly modeled on something like the Holocaust happening. It doesn't fit all modern scenarios that people are fleeing. So it's true that in general, from, from a lot of countries, something like 80 or more percent of people end up losing their claim. But they come anyways, and so we need some combination of modernizing our asylum system to adapt to the reality of cartels and criminal gangs that have effectively, uh, de- you know, incapacitated their respective states. Also, climate refugees completely unaccounted for in our legal system, and then recognizing that a lot of people are so-called economic migrants. But if you're fleeing starvation, at some point, it's a dif- you know distinction without a difference. But expanding economic migration is something that was on the table under, you know, W. Bush's presidency. And today, I don't know. It's, it's, we don't really talk about a serious guest worker program in a real way or even something like the DREAM Act. It's, it's, it's sad where the debate has gone.
0: Well, the debate is being debased beyond belief now with Trump talking about immigrants poisoning the blood of our country. And now you've got you know this moron, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, who was a protege of Trump's, saying, I'm mad that Trump wasn't tougher than that because have you seen what's happening on at the border? We're being overrun. They're taking us over. So that's the strain that's out there, this nativist, racist strain. And Trump is inflaming it, isn't he? Well,
3: it's... It, it's not hyperbole at all to say he's using textbook P- People keep comparing it rightly to Hitler and fascism. It's also the same type of language that gets used in most uh, genocides that I've ever looked at like the in Central America and Guatemala, for instance we were talking about the idea that there's a you know the country is a body and there's something poisoning it infecting it um, so it's yeah it's it's really scary in that regard and I guess you know to me the maddening thing is. <laughs> They're poisoning the blood of our country, okay, and meanwhile we go around and we live in houses and work in office buildings that undocumented labor is built. That, that's what I see.
0: And we go to restaurants where the food is prepared uh, by uh, and everybody has a maid and everybody has a gardener, et cetera, et cetera. So it's so sad that that we can't have a more enlightened depression. You talk about guest workers. I mean, the curious thing is that we should actually have open borders in the sense that you have designated points of entry where people can come and go a lot of emigrants don't want to leave these countries it would be so much better if people could come here to to work and then go home and not just have to send money home but but actually be able to go home does that make more sense
3: well my my understanding is prior to you know roughly 9 11 you know that that was so much more common especially for uh you know mexican workers to just come and go back and forth either on a daily basis as part of their routine or as a sort of seasonal routine and to really be able to maintain their household and family in mexico instead of being severed and forced to pick one or the other i don't know i'm <laughs> there are uh There are valid, somewhat compelling arguments against uh, open borders, uh, but on the other hand, it would take a lot of the bureaucratic uh, burden out of it, wouldn't it? It would uh, get us out of this idea that we're ever going to pass a a rational, responsive system through Congress.
0: Well, you know, I'm sort of floundering here because it's such a big question. and there's so few answers and nobody's talking seriously about it. And the demagogues are taking over with the ugliest stuff.
3: I think it's the, it's, it's the politics. The politics have become entirely an obstacle because there's not, there's not a, uh, a sort of pro immigrant politics that has real purchase and has real purchase in Congress or in, you know, the halls of power right now. Um, so it's the politics, right? Because I can sit here and list off a bunch of policies, a lot of which we considered in the past or even even passed in the past. Or I can <laughs> point to the reality that we all benefit from uh, undocumented laborers every day. Um, but the politics are just toxic now.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Gus Bova, who's a senior staff writer and assistant editor at the Texas Observer, where he covers labor, immigration, and politics. He previously worked at a shelter for recently arrived immigrants and asylum seekers, and his latest article at the Observer is Texas is challenging 150 years of immigration law.